The Read to Lead Podcast, Episode 47. Hi, I'm Sunny Brown, author of The Doodle Revolution, Unlock the Power to Think Differently. Get your pen and paper handy because there's bound to be plenty to doodle about in this episode. It's the Read to Lead Podcast with my friend Jeff Brown. We grew up in communities, most of us, where when you did fail, you basically keep it to yourself. And the world wants to hear about your successes. They don't really want to hear about your failures. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Hi there, and welcome to the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe so strongly in the role that reading plays toward your success in business and in life that each week I sit down with another successful and inspiring business book author to talk about their latest book, and depending on their area of expertise, their thoughts on leadership, personal development, career marketing, business, or entrepreneurship. And in today's episode, we'll chat with Lewis Schiff author of Business Brilliant, Surprising Lessons from the Greatest Self-Made Business Icons. And in today's episode, Lewis encourages us to buck trends and suggests reducing your number of intimate connections, concentrating on innovation and execution rather than that big idea, and the belief that attempting to scrimp and save your way to wealth will not work, and a lot more. When we set up the interview, Lewis warned me that at Inc. Magazine, where his office is located, uh, they have an open office environment. So as we sit down to chat, uh, you're bound to hear some uh, background goings on inside the Inc. offices. Listen carefully and you might pick up a little extra tidbit or two (laughs) along the way. Before we get into that, I want to quickly tell you about our sponsor, Blinkist. Now, Blinkist creates these awesome business book summaries. You can check them out via the web app or on your mobile device and get the main insights and key thoughts from your favorite business books in just about 15 minutes. So think about those business books on your shelf that you've not been able to finish or maybe in some cases you haven't even started yet. Would being able to get through some of those in 15 minutes make life a little bit easier for you? I think so. And right now, Blinkist has a special deal just for you because you're a Read to Lead podcast listener. They're giving 20% off an annual subscription. Now, an annual subscription is only 50 bucks to begin with, so it's pretty cheap right out of the gate. But you can save 20% when you use the discount code, all one word, Read to Lead. Easy to remember, right? Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. That's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist, enter read to lead one word at checkout and save 20% on an annual subscription to Blinkist. Lewis Schiff is the executive director of Inc. Business Owners Council, a membership organization for Inc. Magazine's top entrepreneurs and owners of closely held family businesses and maintains a blog about behavioral entrepreneurship on Inc.com. He has co-authored two books, The Influence of Affluence, The Rise of the New Rich and How They Are Changing America, which charts the rise of America's growing affluent middle class through original research and analysis, and The Armchair Millionaire, which describes a wealth creation system that leverages Nobel Prize-winning methodologies. He is also the author of Business Brilliant. 
Surprising Lessons from the Greatest Self-Made Business Icons, and he is our guest today. Lewis, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Well, Lewis asserts early on in the book that the old rules that sort of insisted that the road to success meant working hard and playing by the rules sort of no longer apply. Going forward, like it or not, every one of us needs to think of ourselves as entrepreneurs. So, Lewis, why has this shift in thinking become necessary in your view? So, I think there's been a very important shift that's taken place, I'll say, over the last 20 or 30 years. Everything I'm about to say is shouldn't be surprising to any one of your listeners, but um, when when it start, the pieces of the puzzle start to be put together, it starts to become overwhelmingly obvious that the rules are changing or have changed already. Um, it's a, a shift in risk from institutions to individuals. So it used to be that you know, you'd know you go to your local school and now you have to choose from 10 charter schools and 10 private schools and 10 public schools. It used to be that you'd get the job in the town industry, uh, whatever the biggest industry was, and you might look forward to 20 or 30 years of loyalty and conformity. And in exchange for your conformity, you'd receive something like a pension. Well, now that company and that relationship between employer and comp- employee and company is much more likely to yield a two or three or five year career than a lifetime career. That means that the, sh- the risk of determining your own employment roadmap is moved much more back on you. Your pension is gone. So now the re- shift in risk has taken place from your retirement going from the institution that employed you to making 401k uh, defined, uh, defined bench benefit uh, decisions. Um, this goes on and on and on. Picking your ho- your doctor, um, everything that used to be a core part of middle class has moved uh, from institutional risk risk down to individual risk. And so one of the, th- the consequences of this is that you have to learn how to think in a risk-based world just the way that entrepreneurs have to think. And that's the shift that's taken place, meaning that nobody um, can just count on the old rules of applying anymore. I want to dig into these seven principles of, of, of how to build wealth uh, and manage your career and, and take risks. Uh, and we've heard often that if you uh, do what you love, the money will follow. Uh, this is principle number one. But the way you put it is do what you love, but always follow the money. So why is it just as important to follow the money as it is doing what you love? This is uh, an early quick example of what I was just speaking about, that um, it's as the rules and the sort of sands underneath our feet are shifting, um, we have to reevaluate the very way we were brought up. So we were brought up to think that we, if we did what we love, the money would follow. The reality is if you look at all the great success stories of our time, it's people who focused on and prioritized creating wealth. Now, they could have done it through passions. Um, but they always had an eye towards the money. The challenge really here is there's quite a bit of research that suggests that um, people have a hard time being controlled. Uh, and there's a certain automatic response we have to being controlled, um, which would be um, either you'd feel confined by it or you feel freed by it. And the, there's a group of people who feel freed by it. Those are people who tend to look at, let's say, a career situation or a job situation and find a way to leverage the opportunity fully. Uh, but most people who are trying to do what they love, let's say they become uh, a restaurateur because they love cooking. Well, those are the very ones who are going to start to feel controlled by the hobby they've chosen. And they're going to find that when the money um, when money is kind of incorporated into the process, they have a much harder time with that. 
The challenge here is that rewards don't always work the way that we think they are. There, there was one uh, researcher I found who was talking about how kids who read a certain number of books were given coupons to go eat fast food at McDonald's. It was a little McDonald's program to get kids to read more. And the kind of conclusion the researcher came to was all we're going to do is teach kids why they shouldn't read because they don't want to be controlled and told to read <laughs> and why, you know, if, by, why reading will make them fat. So that it, the, the notion of rewards, which is do what you love and the money will follow, is, doesn't quite work in human beings the way that, that we think it does. I uh, personally uh, liked, uh, I think it was chapter three, uh, on how you take to, to task uh, today's financial gurus who, who say, you know, pinching pennies and scrimping and saving is your way to wealth. But the problem is that that's not how most self-made millionaires do it, is it? Right. Right. So we make a distinction between something called financial security and financial independence. And so the problem is to market a lot of you know personal finance gurus, they talk about something like creating great wealth. Um, and they then tell you about a methodology that has to do with cutting back on your lifestyle. <laughs> and you know, there's just no evidence from successful people, wealthy people, self-made wealthy people, that they even worry about what they spend. What they really focus on is how they're making money. And so what they would have you do, these personal finance gurus, is they would have you stay in your secure job and then kind of limit your life into something like financial security. The problem there, of course, there's so many problems with that, it's hard to fully grasp. But, you know, one of the big ones is, you know, while you're saving to live for the rest of your life, you're not really living at all. And, you know, the flip side of it is if you're, if you really are interested in making, creating wealth, you're going to find jobs and opportunities that lead to wealth and not, mm -hmm. not jobs and opportunities that, you know, keep your salary stagnant while you, while you live a, a more and more modest lifestyle. Before expanding my horizons and doing a lot of reading in books like yours, uh, among them, uh, I used to think that for me to, to get that big break meant you know, the big idea. There are a lot of those who believe that you've got to have that unique or big idea to become wealthy, but it's, it's more than that, isn't it? Right. So we see that, again, we're talking about self-made wealth creation. So we're talking about these people, you know, we could probably think of some famous people when I say words like self-made wealth creators, but I'm also talking about the people in your town who have done very, very, very well. Now, who are these people? There's probably not too many Mark Cubans in your town. They're probably people who have built businesses successfully. And you know what? They're relatively mundane businesses. And so what we see is that wealth creation is actually a function of execution rather than big innovation. So it's going to be the person who put together, you know, four car lots, car dealerships in your town, that's going to be a very successful person. Execution on simple ideas done very, very well. And you know, even within execution, there's lots of opportunity to innovate. And that's when you learn how truly difficult innovation is. So one of the things I looked at was just the process that the this, this store we all remember called Kinko's, right? This mm -hmm. copy shop. When he had to convince his franchisors, franchisees to go from regular office hours to 24 hours a day, this simple innovation, one of the defining innovations of Kinko's, took so much convincing. Now, that's a good example of innovation, but really it's an example of ideas executed with excellence. And so when you think about what it took to go from being you know, regular office hours to 24 hours a day, a lot of things had to change. Economics had to change. Staffing had to change. That's hard to do, and you have to execute it right. You have to convince people that that's worth doing. But if you're sitting in your house waiting for the big idea to wash over you before you'll take your first steps, that's not how wealth is created. That's, that's fantasies. That's not how wealth is created. 
so many of these principles buck uh, traditional trends and wisdom. This next one, especially so, I think, in, in this social media-driven world we live in, you make an argument for a network of fewer people, not not more. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Not just fewer people, but fewer people that you're a lot closer to. Mm. So I always use this very simple litmus test, which is of the people you think you are close to professionally. First of all, I'd, I'd want to go down into, if I were with you and talking about your actual network, I'd really want to look into the quality of these people. Are they going where you want to go? Are they, have they done what you want to accomplish? Okay. You know, we don't need to be around a lot of people who have done less than we've done and have no intentions of doing any more. So first you have to look at the quality. And then the second is your intimacy with them. So professionally speaking, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm wondering about things like, do you even know? Of these, I don't know, two or three or four or 10 people that you think you're professionally close to, can you even tell me how much money they make? Mm-hmm. And can you even tell me how much money they want to make? All of us are so afraid to talk about incomes and how much we make. But when you look at very successful people, they surround themselves with quality people and then they reveal almost everything to each other. And then they talk all the time about things. So that's a level of intimacy that eludes most of us. And that's definitely not about quantity. It's about quality. And that's something that's gotten lost over the years. Uh, would a good example of that in, in sort of the real world be maybe a mastermind group? Could be. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, you see people doing it now, um, not artificially, that's not the right word, but right. you know, they're, they're contriving it instead of it just happening organically. Right. And uh, that's great. What a great tradition and uh, what a great kind of evolution of relationships. Mm. Another takeaway for me was how vastly different the middle class and self-made millionaires view negotiating. You know, I've, I always thought, well, win-win, that's what it's all about. But you, sure. you say win-win is a sure way to lose. Well, this is obviously a very controversial idea. Every time we talk about this, I talk about it, and I get a lot of pushback because it sounds like I'm saying everyone should be mean. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, A, the evidence is very clear. If you go into a win-win negotiation with somebody who doesn't feel the same, you're very likely to be the one who loses. So you have to ask yourself, you know, who am I negotiating with and what's their orientation? And you never really know the answer. Now, the way very successful people deal with this is that they toss win-win aside as a concept. They basically look out for themselves. When I say look out for themselves, I don't mean that they want to hurt you. I mean they just have a clear idea about what they're in it for and that if they don't get to what they're in it for – then they pull out of the deal. That's so hard for people who haven't really mastered wealth creation to pull out of a deal. The whole, you go to, again, I'll use a car dealership as an example. Mm. You sit with your, at the car dealership and, you know, they have a whole kind of psychological strategy to get you to buy into the idea of whatever car you're going to buy. Checking with this quote unquote manager, you know, all these different techniques they have for you to commit yourself. And then coming back and saying, oh, it's going to be not another $500 more for the undercoating and you're already bought in. You're basically <laughs> talking yourself into it. The gift that a lot of very successful people have is they can say, you know what? I set a budget for myself of this much money, or I was planning on getting this much out of this negotiation, and now I'm not getting it anymore, so I'm going to cut it off. So when I say win-win is a sure way to lose, I basically mean if you don't get what you want, then walk away. You have to know when you're going to walk away. Mm. And does the other person get what they want? You don't really care one way or the other. Mm. I used to struggle a, a great deal and still sometimes do with, with delegation. I, I thought that, that delegating meant the task wasn't either going to get done properly or that I was just being lazy. <laughs> Compare and contrast, uh, if you would, Lewis, the differences in how the middle class and self-made millionaires uh, view delegation, the sort of spread the work, spread the wealth mantra. Sure. So 
you know, this is easiest seen when you really don't know what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. It's so delegation makes so much sense when you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> and so you hire someone else to do it for you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not a very handy guy, so I delegate, you know, the painting of my house to a painter, mm-hmm. and that just makes all the sense in the world. And when it comes right down to it, I'm not going to ask that painter to, you know. Um, you know, do three coats instead of two, because I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, let's look at this in business. We see that Richard Branson, it's a great example. Richard Branson is a, has, has dyslexia at, at, to an extreme. Mm. What that means is he really can't look at the numbers because the numbers dance all over the page when he looks at it. So what does that mean to a guy who has built eight companies whose revenues exceed a billion dollars, which is basically an incredible accomplishment? Mm. It means he has to find someone out there who can do it uh, in a way that he doesn't. What we see are that lots of um, middle-class folks um, basically value technical knowledge. Uh, they don't really value networking mm-hmm. or um, developing environments where uh, people can become their, their toolbox rather than skills. And what that does as a result is it keeps them as a technical provider. It doesn't get let them to get above being a technical provider to the point where you're the manager or the owner. Um, so I would just basically put it that way. I think if you if you want to master delegation, it's not really um, – yes, there's a control aspect that you have to work with. But really, it's an absolutely necessary threshold that you must pass through if you are going to get to the point where you're getting you know more work done than just you can do alone. And getting caught up in the details has very little value to the really successful entrepreneur. Well, you hear a lot about failure uh, these days. I want to get into principle number seven here. And you know, you hear fail fast, fail often. Lewis mm-hmm. says nothing succeeds like failure. And the main difference, it seems to be, is between self-made millionaires and, and the middle class is one group is not afraid to talk about it. The other group is. Right. So again, you know, we start out in the very beginning of this conversation talking about how the rules of employment, the rules of wealth creation are, have been changing and how those who seem to understand these business brilliant principles are the ones who seem to be accumulating wealth, but they're often really in conflict with the way we were raised. And so I don't mean that we were raised to be ashamed of failure in a sense that our parents taught us to be ashamed of it. I'm just saying that we grew up in communities, most of us, where when you did fail, you basically keep it to yourself. And the world wants to hear about your successes. They don't really want to hear about your failures. Um, gosh, I spent some time this past week with a guy. He hands me his business card. And on one side, it says the hits. And he's listed about four or five things of his most successful businesses. And you flip the card over and it says the misses. <laughs> and it's got about 12 things that didn't work out. I love it. And so this is a guy who's literally wearing it on his sleeve at this point. His business card tells you about his hits and his misses. And that's a totally different way of looking at failure. You know what I mean? Because you read that and you see that card and now you respect this guy in a totally different way. Um, you got to flip the switch on this thing all the way mm-hmm. from shame or un- discomfort with speaking about it to pride, but also to absolutely understand, you know, pride is one thing. It's really that you took the time to understand what you should learn from those failures. And when I do speak around the country, very often I'm asked by folks, you know, tell me about one of your failures. And so I'm happy to do it because it's kind of a put up or shut up moment for them and me. (laughs) And that's what they're asking for. You know, will somebody really stand up in front of a room and say when they did something that didn't work out, but that, that should become easier. And by the way, who do you share that with? those people who you're very intimate with professionally so that you and they can benefit from it, right? You don't have to tell everyone everywhere, but you have to find a small group, maybe a mastermind, but a small group of people that you know are benefiting from that uh, wisdom, and that is wisdom. 
I had a recent, what I would consider a failure, or at least something that didn't, that wasn't as successful as I had hoped for it to be and anticipated being. And immediately, a couple of guys in a mastermind group that I'm a part of wanted to talk about it, but I didn't want to talk about it. I, 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 I had to have some time to, now eventually I will, but, uh, but I recognized in me that lack of a desire and even shame, I think is probably the right word of, of, you know, wanting to be wanting wanting it to be really successful and realizing it hadn't been, and then being embarrassed by that. Well, you know, I think that there's absolutely a fair thing to be said about I'll call it mourning, mourning an idea yeah. and uh, and processing what happened uh, at emotional and at an intellectual level. Um, so I understand that. I understand how in the moment it might be hard. I'm not saying it's the right response. It might be the right response to tell everyone how you're feeling mm. uh, and or your you know a mastermind group how you're feeling. A appreciate how they'll benefit from that information and B how cathartic it could be for you to share it. Yeah. But I would say um, if you need to wait a week or so you know or a month you know that that we understand that. The difference is whether or not really I'd say there's a few differences. One, who do you blame at the end of the day? And my blame that's a that's a word that comes right out of shame and, and and I don't mean that word like that. But I mean at the end of it, are you saying, here's what I, Jeff, here's what I did wrong? Or are you saying here's what that person did wrong and that person did wrong and that person did wrong? Mm. Um because it's very hard to learn from failure if you think everyone else screwed up and you didn't. <laughs> um <laughs> And 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 you know, the second thing is just you know by by putting that stuff out there and by having yourself and other people saying here's what I think you did wrong, really inviting that conversation. Mm. That's really a very valuable moment for you. And so to to invite that moment is a very uh, important one. Yeah, I agree. Well, can can business brilliance, Lewis, be learned, or is it a talent that that some are just born with? Well, this is a this is this is a uh, I'll call it a trillion dollar question <laughs> because you know the truth is we have. Um, Really, just as many businesses are being started now as we're ever being started, you know, per capita. It's not like business creation is is happening at some kind of a faster rate. But the other thing that's true is that business failure is also happening roughly at the same rate. You would think, with all the research and all the time, and there are there are over two thousand um, entrepreneurship programs taught in colleges today. Probably twenty five years ago uh, or earlier, when we were in school, there were probably two. And now there's mm. 2,000. So you would think that with all this talking and teaching and researching going on, there would be some tangible result. Either business startups would increase or business successes would increase. So far, we don't see that. However, I don't know if that's really what's the essence of your question in terms of you know how many more entrepreneurs have been created as a result of our research. Mm. I think what we're, what we're hoping for are that more people learn how to respond more entrepreneurially to whatever situation they're in. So as the as as risk has shifted from institutions to individuals, do they respond by by taking that risk and maximizing it or do they respond by essentially behaving the way they always have and getting exactly the same results? Well, in the book's final chapter, uh, Lewis identifies four broad areas of daily activity that successful self-made entrepreneurs are better at than most. Lewis, if you would, uh, share with us the four parts of your uh, leap mnemonic and, and why it's important to be doing at least one of them every day. Sure. So, you know, mnemonics are really uh, designed to help you change the way you think. And that's that's a very hard thing to do, but it's also where we have to go in this. So um, LEAP stands for, it's L-E-A-P, and it stands for learn, earn, assistance, and persistence. So briefly, learning is really being laser focused on what it is you're best at and trying to construct a professional life that is built around what you're best at. Mm. 
Um, we probably know people in our lives who do this, so it's easier to see in action. But you know, that real estate person we know who seems to have really be good at knowing where the, where real estate is going, or or that or maybe they're a great negotiator. There are people who really understand what they're good at, and they do it all day long, or they do it as much as they can. So many of us spend time doing things that we're only okay at, or even not good at, and we spend a lot of our time doing that. So learn what you're good at and do it as much as possible. Earn. That's that's a uh, simple to say, hard to do. Earn is um, work yourself up the money ladder, what I call the money ladder. So most of us have employment. Most of us are paid forty hours a week for forty hours worth of work, and that's very very difficult to create wealth that way. Uh, moving up the money ladder means look for opportunities between yourself and your employer, or move into a full entrepreneurial opportunity where you're being paid for something like success. Okay, so it's whether it's bringing in a project or mm-hmm. maximizing a pro- um, managing a project efficiently so that there's extra profit left over, or generating a commission from act- from business activity that takes place, all the way up to uh, one day really owning or co-owning a company. Okay. That's what um, earnings all about. Assistance is what we spoke about earlier. It's about building a network of people who not only um, do you have real good professional intimacy with and you're really there for each other, but you actually have you have complementary skill sets. So going back to learn, learn what you're good at and surround yourself with people who are good at the things you're not good at, but you need to have in your toolbox in order to get the job done. And then finally, persistence. Persistence is you know, a result of... Um, it's basically the defining quality that separates most people from bus- the business brilliant because it's never really going to work out the first time and it may not work out the second time. So you're going to have to put this whole thing together, learn what you're good at, put yourself in an earning situation, build a network of people who are good at what you're not good at. And then you're going to s- have to see what works and what doesn't work and how the marketplace responds. And you're going to have to persist through the, the adversity, through the headwinds of, of your market experience those are four things, and you know, as you mentioned, the book kind of goes into more detail in brain exercises, how to switch them on and, and, and develop these areas. But it's kind of a virtuous, cir- virtuous circle that you're figuring out what you're good at, earning money by doing it, finding people who are good at the things you're not good at, and then, and then persisting through failure so that you can figure out even more what you're good at, even more how to earn money, even more who should be in your, in your network, and on and on and on. Mm. Very good. Well, Lewis, uh, between your work at uh, Inc. and the books you've written and, and co-written, you've had the opportunity to impact a lot of people with your work. Uh, at the end of the day, what do you hope your legacy to be? Well, I'm very committed to this idea of uh, what I call business brilliance. So you asked the question earlier, are, are you know if these folks born or made? Mm-hmm. I would like to hold myself up to the standard um, that I shared with you earlier. I would like there to be more successful businesses um, for people who start businesses. I'd like to, and I don't have to impact huge numbers, but you know, if the percentage of business failures were to um, decrease or increase by by single digits percent wise, and if I were part of the group of thinkers and educators, business people who help that happen, I would feel great about that legacy. I think this notion of starting a business and owning something or this notion of behaving more entrepreneurially in your work environment, um, I understand how hard it is. It it rubs up against emotion. It rubs up against tradition. Um, It's a hard thing to do. I I think if there was some kind of tangible evidence at the end of my life that we had had an impact, (laughs) I feel like that was my legacy. (laughs) Well, can you name for us a couple of books you've read or are maybe currently reading that have had an impact on you and, and, and maybe share how or why they impacted you as they did? Sure. Um, these are books I recommend for, I think, business people who want to be in business, um, and I love to recommend these books. One is called Small Giants. 
It's written by a guy named Bo Burlingham. Mm. And it's a beautiful, beautifully written book, but it's a beautiful look. So the, the, the tagline or the subhead of the book is, you don't have to be big to be great. Mm. And it looks at companies that are on the small side, but have committed themselves to having an impact not only on profit and bottom line, but also on something else. Could be the community, could be something charitable, it could be just the the area, the industry that they serve. And so they're they're acting like great companies, um, but they're not necessarily big companies, and they don't even want to be big companies. Uh, I think that that alignment that is the holy grail for so many entrepreneurs is the alignment between your business morality and your personal morality. Mm-hmm. And when I see businesses that have that kind of alignment, it's a wonderful thing to see. Another book I think is great for business people who want to get sophisticated about their businesses is called No Man's Land mm. by Doug Tatum. And No Man's Land is um, another a great book I love to recommend it because uh, his, his um, uh, subhead on that book is um, when you're too big to be small and too small to be big. <laughs> and so it's really the inevitable result of a certain amount of success when you've built something and you know you were sort of nimble and entrepreneurial, but now you've actually got some traction. And you have to decide, am I going to stay small, entrepreneurial, and nimble? Or am I going to try and be one of the top you know, big players in our business, whatever that business is? And you have to decide. Um, and it's very sophisticated because most people would dream of being in the situation where their business is beyond just tiny and, and struggling for success. And now they actually have a platform from which to build a bigger opportunity for everybody. It is you think it's hard to start a business? Try getting from small to big. That's hard. And 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 Doug is great at explaining it and talking about what you have to do to get ready. And it just goes to show you, I, I think we always, you know, because I spend a lot of time with very successful people, sometimes very rich people, and there's just such a misconception about what their lives are like. And the fact is, the reason why I like to be with these people, the reason why I study them, and the reason why I, I try to promote that their best practices can also be your best practices is because the one thing they have in common is that they're fighters, you know, and when you are a good sized company and you want to be a big company, that's a really hard challenge. It's, it's just, maybe they look like they're driving a nice car from the outside, but they're working really hard to do that. And I respect the heck out of that. Probably goes without saying that I love discovering uh, new books to read. Both of those that you recommended being mentioned for the first time on the show. So awesome. So great to have that. Uh, what's next for you, Lewis? What projects are you working on uh, currently that you're excited about and, and feel free to share about? <laughs> well, actually I have some top secret stuff I'm working oh, on. Okay. <laughs> so I will, I would love to talk about it when it's uh, not top secret anymore, sure, but I'll sure. tell you this. I think, that we are in for a, a, a long-term trend around this notion of people behaving more entrepreneurially. And so it's some of it's driven by, you know, um, as we spoke about at the top of this program, about the shifting sands of the work environment, that it's simply not sufficient to just, you know, put your head down and put in your 20. It just doesn't work anymore. And so as a result of that, whether you want to or whether you have to, I think people are embracing this concept of lifetime entrepreneurship, even in their career development. And that's that's where I want to be. You spoke about legacy earlier. Now, who does that and how? That's the big question. So do you go to your community college to get that kind of information? Do you look for mentors in your community to get that information? Do you read books, listen to podcasts? You do all of these things. I mean, they're all important, but I would like the tools of that um, type of teaching instruction to become a little more sophisticated, a little more measurable. And so my top secret project has to do with teaching people what works in an environment that is measurable and, you know, 
is, is chosen by individuals who want to be in this. Uh, here's the, without sounding too coy about it all, I'll, uh, you cannot know that Shark Tank, this TV show, is watched by 8 million people around the world and say, wow, something big is happening here. You know, you, it, it's just in our faces right now. <laughs> when 8 million people are watching a show about, you know, how to, how to be successful, mm. That means everyone is watching it because 8 million people is a, is a, is a sample of everybody at that point. It's not men. It's not women. It's not young. It's not old. It becomes everybody. So everybody's trying to figure this out. How do I take an idea or how do I take my own skills and get more out of them? And my top secret projects are around, you know, leveraging that. Well, I want to give a nod, a tip of the hat to our mutual friend, uh, Jeff Goins, who was the one who uh, turned me on to your book. So I'm thankful for that. And just want to say thanks, Lewis, for your taking the time to be with us today. I learned a lot from reading the book, and I highly recommend it to anyone and everyone. Well, thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate your sharing this with your community. I love how the LEAP mnemonic ties the seven business brilliant principles together. If you'd like to network with Lewis, one of the best ways to do that is on Twitter. He is at Lewis Schiff on Twitter. That's L-E-W-I-S-S-C-H-I-F-F, at Lewis Schiff. On Twitter, remember to mention the Read to Lead podcast when you reach out to Lewis. Everything you'd like to know about Lewis and his new book and anything we talked about in the way of resources, books, and links can be found at the page created especially for this episode. It's called the show notes page, and you'll find the one for today's episode at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 047 for episode 47. Remember our sponsor, Blinkist, and your chance to save 20% on an annual subscription when you use the discount code READTOLEAD. Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist to find out more. And if you haven't already, I'd love it if you'd rate the podcast and leave a written review. This helps the podcast stay visible and makes it more likely to show up to folks who haven't yet discovered it. If you give it a five-star rating and leave a written review so I know who you are, I'll be sure to mention you by name in an upcoming episode as my way of saying thanks. To rate and review the podcast, just visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes or readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. I want to say thank you to Alan Dubon at alandubon.com who says it's one of his top five and gives it a five-star rating. Thank you, Alan. Well, that's going to do it for another week. Hope to see you next time for the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Just need your body, babe, from dusk till dawn. You don't need experience to turn me out. You just leap up to me. I'm gonna show you what it's all about. You don't have to be rich. To be my girl, you don't have to be cool and rule my world. Ain't no particular 
just want your extra time.